I want to uh, just mention something else here. Last Sunday, Merv Lapp preached a, a message at our regular Sunday morning service at Trauger on foundations, and he referred to the wise man and the foolish man, the parable of the wise man and the foolish man. And he suggested to us that the two houses, one built on the rock and one built on the sand, were not one built on the beach and one built up on the cliffs where the rocks were, but that they were, in fact, built right next to each other. And probably looked similar or maybe even the same. But the one builder had decided to go deep and so he took the time and effort and expense and sacrifice to dig down to the rock that was there and anchor his foundation to that. And for the other house, the rock was there, but that builder was too much in a hurry or couldn't be bothered or didn't want to go to the expense or whatever the reason was. He didn't want to go deep. And so tonight I'd sort of like to continue that theme, that thought. And I think we're all aware that in order for us to walk close to our Savior, it takes a great deal of effort on our parts. It does not happen by accident. And it doesn't happen by coasting along. And it's not something that can be preached onto us. It's a personal decision that we all have to make. It has to be a desire that comes from our hearts to, to enter into the grace that Jesus Christ has given to us. And I want to talk a little bit about that this evening. When I was teaching this the book of Acts to Sunday school at Trauger, there was this idea in chapter 2 that really stood out to me. And that's kind of the, uh, from where this um, lesson comes. I'd like for you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to take the time to read Peter's first sermon here uh, just after Pentecost. I'm going to begin in verse 14, Acts 2, 14, and we're going to read to verse 36, and I invite you to stand as we read, as I read. Acts 2, 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens will I, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it sh shall come to pass that whosoever shall call the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. Him 
being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For thou hast made known to me the ways of life, thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore... Being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore... Being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. You may sit down. Now you may wonder why I stopped there and didn't read the next verse, but we'll get to that in a bit. So who was Peter speaking to in this message? Well, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 2, this is right after Pentecost, and there's all these different people um, at Pentecost in Jerusalem. Jews, he's speaking to Jews, devout people it says, Uh, but they were from all kinds of nations and they were all hearing people, I'm sorry, hearing Peter preach this message in their own language. So he's speaking to people from all over the place, not just Jerusalem. Were these people responsible for Jesus' death? Why was Peter blaming them for Jesus' death? He, he, in two different verses, says, you crucified him. Now, there's no indication here, at least not that I can see, that he's speaking to the Jewish rulers. And there's even less indication that he's speaking to the Romans, who are the ones that crucified him. Do you think that some of these people were present at the trial of Jesus? Were they part of the mob that was screaming, crucify him, crucify him? We don't know. We do know that... He's addressing the man of Israel, verse 22, in effective fashion. I've always wondered who was in that crowd that was screaming, crucify him, crucify him, and and how they 
gathered together a large number of people to be so against Jesus. And there, there was no one at Jesus' crucifixion and death that stood up for him. Uh, near as I can tell, the only person who, who really stood up for Jesus with any conviction was Pilate's wife. Where she urged her husband to have nothing to do with this man. And she'd been warned in a dream about him. Did you ever wonder where that dream came from? And who she was? That she was the one who had a dream about Jesus being a just man? I I don't understand all that. I've often wondered about that. Well, Peter certainly didn't stand up for Jesus. Peter's the one preaching here. So why is Peter blaming this group of people? Well, let's think about who's preaching here, Peter, and let's go back just a couple of weeks. And let's remind ourselves it wasn't very long. It was just a matter of weeks ago that Peter is in the courtyard when Jesus is being tried and he, he commits his greatest failure where three times he denies Jesus even though he, Jesus had warned him that he's going to do it and he did it anyway. And there is, there is one gospel that indicates Luke twenty two sixty one, 61 that Jesus looked on Peter And we don't know what passed between the two in that look. But it was after that that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Luke twenty-two sixty-two. Now it's not clear in Scripture whether Peter witnessed the crucifixion. But he does say in the passage I just read that of whom we are witnesses. So I assume, I don't know if that exactly means that he witnessed the crucifixion, but I assume that Peter probably watched. Can you imagine the state of his heart and mind as he saw Jesus put on a cross? I think it's safe to assume that this was a completely distraught and confused and defeated man. He was in a position of great need. He had been brought so low. And he couldn't rectify his mistake because Jesus was dead. I'm sure that if you and I would be in a similar situation with our spouse or one of our children, we would be completely beside ourselves. Well, Peter was one of the first several people to be at the tomb on resurrection morning. 
I think one of the first possibly three people or so. And according to John chapter 20 um, and verse 8, I think Peter was probably the very first one to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. It says that Peter looked in and he, he, he saw the grave clothes and he believed. Now, do you understand why it was so important or why it was such a big deal to Peter that Jesus is alive? We understand that, don't we? Because if Jesus is alive, there is a chance. There's a chance for Peter. If not, Peter's going to go to his grave a different man. Apparently, the first two people to meet Jesus after he rose from the dead were a woman and a man, both, both in a tremendous, tremendous position of need, both with many, many regrets and in desperate need of Jesus' grace and forgiveness. They were, of course, Peter and Mary Magdalene. Now, it's, un, it's not clear in Scripture who the woman was that um, wet Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair as he sat at meat. Um, many people believe that was Mary Magdalene. So we're going to suppose that it was. If it was Mary Magdalene that wet Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, I think that's a similar state to Peter's bitter weeping after his denial. Mary Magdalene, we know, um, was delivered of seven demons. And we don't know what happened or the kind of decisions she made or what she did to, for all that to take place. But whoever that woman was, if it was Mary Magdalene, and it kind of fits with my um, illustration here, she was in a position of great, great need. Now we know a little bit about Jesus meeting with Mary Magdalene after he rose from John chapter 20 when she had that touching interaction with him after he was risen from the dead. She was, she was zealous of his body. Where, where have they taken him? Where have they taken him? We don't know anything about the meeting between Jesus and Peter. It's referred to in Luke 24, 34. And they arose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Uh, this is the two on the road to Emmaus, I think. And found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared unto Simon. And that's really all that's said about it in Scripture. So if, Peter, if Jesus did in fact meet Peter, which I think he did according to that verse, what, what do you think was said? It's interesting to me that Peter in, in his writings or he does not mention this whole business of, of the 
the denial or this meeting with Jesus. It, it almost seems like that was too sacred an interaction to even, for, for him to even talk about. And I don't, I don't blame Peter a bit if he didn't want to talk about that to anybody. Can we assume? No, we can't assume. But I'm going to suggest that maybe, for the purposes of our discussion this evening, maybe one of the things that Jesus had to make Peter see was that he needed to die. Jesus needed to die for Peter's sins. And so even though Peter was the one who pulled out the sword in the garden and tried to defend Jesus sort of a little, albeit in a very wrong way, Jesus didn't need for Peter to intervene and to keep him from going to the cross. Jesus was going to the cross for Peter's sake, for his sins. And that's the man who's preaching to this crowd of people. You have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now whether or not these people were in the crowd chanting for Jesus to be crucified has probably nothing to do with it. These people were responsible for Jesus' death. Jesus died for their sins, but you know what? So are we. It was my sins that nailed him there. It was your sins that nailed him there. We took him and crucified him. As it were. Because he died for us. He shed his blood for us. He suffered for us. Let's make this more personal. He did what he did for you. You. We all need to understand our culpability in Jesus' death. And we need to deal with it. The thing that struck me as I taught this in Sunday school was verse 37, which we didn't get to when we read. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. They were pricked in their heart. My middle margin says they were cut to the heart. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? What shall we do? Well, the answer came quickly. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. I'd like for us to think this evening about the joy of our salvation. And if you're asking yourself, what does this have to do with missions? Well, this has everything to do with missions. Without us understanding what we have been delivered from, we've got really nothing to share or talk about. How can a group of people or how can an individual who does not understand and experience the joy of our salvation, how can we share that with anybody else? And the answer is, we can go through the motions, but we can't really connect. When was the last 
that you felt anguish for your sins. And I think that's what is happening here in verse 37. That these people were over what they knew that Peter was right. They knew that they were responsible for the death of Jesus. They knew that they were sinful and needed a Savior. What, what shall we do? And it's that, it's that similar helplessness, hopelessness that maybe the Ethiopian treasure felt when he was reading in Isaiah 53 and he knew something big is happening here and he doesn't know what. And he knows he has this need and he, he doesn't know how to, to get help until Philip preaches to him Jesus and the man is ready. The euphoria of redemption is closely tied to the anguish of being lost. Or, in the case of Peter, the anguish of that broken relationship. And that's what Peter was suffering for when he was weeping bitterly for however long and wherever he was. It was the broken relationship. He was one of the main disciples of Jesus for the last three years. He was the one that Jesus commended when he said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church in the gates of hell. And he had thrown it all away. And the relationship was irreparably broken, he thought. And that's what he was weeping about. And that's the state that every single one of us find ourselves in outside of Jesus Christ. There is a massive chasm between us and the Father. And there is no way we can get through. And the cross is what's the bridge. We understand this. This is not new to you people. Now, feeling anguish for our sin is not the same as feeling guilt for our sin. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. We sometimes would like to stop there, but the verse continues, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We do not need to feel guilt for our sins. Our sins are covered by the blood. They are forgiven and God has forgotten them, remembers them no more. What do you think it will be like in heaven? Will we be able to remember? If we can't remember that we were sinners, how will we remember that Jesus has saved us? I believe we will remember. I believe we will completely understand in heaven what he has done for us, more, even clearer and better than we, than we do here. The Apostle Paul was another man, of course, who had a tremendous amount of regret. He talks about it in the scriptures. He brings it up every now and then. I am less than the least of all saints, he says. He writes several times about his past. Ephesians 3.8 is the one I just referred to. Romans 7.24. Oh, wretched man that I am. 
Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Feeling anguish for our sin is different from feeling guilt for our sins. Now, I know that our, our experiences are different. And so I'm speaking from my experience. And the reason I do that because it's the only experience I have, mine. And I was saved very young. And I was not... Um, how should I say this? I, I was not a person who was saved from doing all kinds of wicked, evil things. And so I think about this a little more. And, and maybe some of you are thinking to yourself, well, I, I think about my past sins every day. And may, maybe your situation is completely different. Maybe you came to, uh, to Christ at a much um, older age, as an adult, for instance, having made a lot of terrible mistakes in your past. And so maybe this is not a problem for you. But for some of us who, who, who were saved early, young, and who grew up in church all our lives and heard the gospel preached and saw communion services when we were children, sometimes we'll get used to it. And I find that dangerous. And I think we need to remind ourselves of the cost of our salvation because we cannot experience the joy of our salvation if we do not understand the cost. This, the euphoria of salvation is closely linked to the anguish of being lost. Without experiencing the anguish for our sins, how will we understand grace? Close on the heels of this anguish comes the rush of grace that is given us by Jesus Christ. How can we share Christ if we don't understand or experience the grace that he's extended to us? How can we value the souls of the unsaved, especially the unlovable, unsavory unsaved, if we don't understand and remember how unsavory and unlovable we were before our conversion, before we were saved? Self-righteousness is a, is a grievous evil. And I believe that people like myself, maybe people like us here, we, we need to guard against it all the time. We are not where we are because we are good people. We are where we are because of the grace of God. You did not choose your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents. The heritage that we have been given is a gift. How in the world did I deserve to be born to the parents that I had, that I have? How did we end up here? It is all a gift of His grace. Self-righteousness is a grievous evil. It separates us from grace. It makes us callous to the needs around us. and makes us blind to our own needs. 
When you consider the parable or the story of the unforgiving servant, the one who had been forgiven a great debt and then went out and pounded on his fellow servants for a measly debt. That's a classic example of a person who doesn't understand the value of his own salvation. And so he throws it away. And, and we are in danger of that if we are not remember what we are saved from. One of, one of our biggest problems is that we fall prey to the lie of Satan that certain sins are worse than others. And so our jealousies and our angers and our dishonesties and so on don't matter as much because there are people who are way worse than we are. And because we never dabbled in vices here and vices there, somehow we are not as culpable. And that's a lie of Satan. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it is our sin nature that condemns us. We don't have the right to categorize sin. We don't have the right to think that some have more to repent of than others. And we certainly should never fall prey to the thinking that we have to do some gross sin that we have to repent from so that we can experience great salvation. That's, we understand that's, that's a lie. Jesus addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that being angry with your brother is equated to murder. And looking on a woman to lust after her is equated to adultery. Matthew 5 verses 21 to 28. Has there been a time in our lives when we have been brought low so we can experience or so we can understand what salvation is? Now my burden with this message in particular is, is especially for young people, for teenagers and 20-somethings. And my burden is not that, that you wouldn't, let me rephrase that. I know that you young people have a real desire to serve the Lord and follow Him and be effective. My burden is sometimes that when we are young, we, we get attracted to the flashing lights. And we want to do big stuff. We want to go places and see things and do things. And we have all the opportunities to do that. We have the money to do it. We have the time to do it. And we have the places to go to do it. But if we do those things without the basics... And I'm talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ. A deep one. That is sitting on the rocks. As it were. If we, if we do those things. Without the basics. We do a lot of wheel spinning. And we spend a lot of money. And we spend a lot of time. or maybe not a lot of result. So we all have to deal with the fact 
that on the one hand, Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. But on the other hand, Paul in Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So there it is. The difference between being able to do nothing and being able to do everything is Christ and Christ alone. It has absolutely nothing to do with what I have to offer. It has nothing to do with my spiritual gift. It has nothing to do with what I bring to the table. So here's a suggestion. I mentioned at least twice, I don't know if you caught it or not, that the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts worked and manifested itself in times and places of need. And I think that we should consider that we need to learn to live our lives spiritually in a position of need. When we become self-righteous, when we think that we have it together, when we think we've got the answers, when we think that people should be coming out to us for advice or whatever it is, whatever the case may be, then we get dangerous. We need His grace. We need His presence. We need His empowering. We need His love in our hearts for other people. We need... I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. We should probably sing that song more. It's in your hymn book. Luke chapter 7, verse 47, speaking of the woman whom I suggested may have been Mary Magdalene, who was behind him, wetting his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. He said to Simon, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Simon was a self-righteous man. So her love was measured by her need. If we do not understand and experience and feel the joy of our salvation, we will, I don't think it's possible, really, for us to come to a position of really loving Jesus. And in the parable of the sower, which in some Bibles is called the parable of the soils, which I like that title a little better because that's really what it's about, there are two particular kinds of soil where the, the, the seed of the word lands on and it sprouts and grows, but it doesn't last. And the problem is not in the seed. The problem is in the soil. So what is the problem with the soil when young people or new believers 
they experience their, that salvation and um, after a period of, of growth, they, they fall away. And the euphoria of the redemption kind of disappears and well, if, if we do not if, if we do not enter into a love relationship with Jesus, that's going to happen. So I want to tell a story here about our son Tyler and his mom. This happened a couple of years ago. I can't remember which year. I should have checked with uh, Jane about that. Um, Tyler and Matt uh, King were chiefs at Ohio Wilderness Boys Camp. And they put on a mother-son banquet as they do every year. And for this particular year, I know this wasn't typical, but this particular year the chief's mothers were invited to be at the banquet. And so Jane and I wouldn't have missed that for anything. I didn't get invited to the banquet, but uh, I went along anyway. So Jane and I and Dave and Marianne too went to Ohio Boys Camp for the uh, mother-son banquet. We got there to camp and went looking for our son. It had been a while since he'd been home. And sure enough, we saw this group of boys coming down the road toward us. And Tyler saw his mom, and he broke into a sprint. He hadn't seen her in a while. And keep in mind that we often refer to God as being our father, and he is, but God is also fulfills the mother role for us. And maybe that's sort of where Jesus comes in, fulfilling the mother role for us. Now, I'm Ty's dad, and Tyler and I have an, have an excellent relationship, and um, we have done all kinds of things together. And he's my only son, and I love him dearly, and he hardly looked at me. He was headed straight for his mom as fast as he could go. Down the road he came, hollering as he came. Matt was coming too. He was a little more reserved. Um, Tyler's a little more uh, on his sleeve. But both of these big, big boy, 20-year-old chiefs headed straight for their moms. And behind them came this raggedy tag group of little boys trying to keep up. When was the last time that you ran to Jesus like that? When was the last time that I ran to Jesus like that? Straight into his arms, that's all I wanted. That was a a strong... Uh, uh, picture for me and that's something I'll never forget when we can learn to love Jesus that way then we can become useful and effective in witnessing and ministry well the joy of our salvation also leads and of course a growing love for Jesus leads to a commitment to Jesus Now, people, I know that I'm preaching to the choir here because I know this group of people. 
is in fact committed to Jesus. I have lived and worked and worshipped among you long enough to know that. I want you to understand that. <clears throat> but I think this needs said anyway. So in John 21, Peter, this was after Jesus' resurrection. And Peter had, Jesus had appeared to the disciples several times. And then you have this chapter 21 where Peter says, I'm going fishing. I don't know how he said it, but that's what he said. I go fishing. And so the other disciples went with him. Now we don't know exactly what was going on in their heads, do we? We can suppose, but we don't really know for sure. But that night, they didn't catch any fish. So in the morning, they came to the shore, and there's a man standing on the shore. They don't know who it is. And Jesus called to them. Um, I, I wonder if Jesus wasn't jabbing a little bit. He said, uh, have you any meat? Nah, we didn't catch a thing. Well, throw your net on the other side of the boat. So they did. 153 great fishes. And John caught on immediately and he told Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter, out of the boat, into the water, to the shore. When they came to the shore, Jesus had a fire built. He took of the fishes that they had dragged to the shore. They could hardly handle the net. And they ate breakfast. So again, Jesus meets Peter's need. And then he's got some questions for Peter. Three of them, or one of them, whichever it was. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. And he repeats it. And he repeated, and the third time, Peter's a bit disturbed or annoyed, one or the other. And he said, Lord, thou knowest all things. I know that I love thee. Feed my sheep. Do we love him? Do you love him? If he was standing in front of us today, what would he say? Do you love me? I think maybe he would say, build my church. Do you love me? Build my church. Do you love him? Build his church. Maybe there are some of you that have a past that you are completely ashamed of. Maybe you're ashamed of yourself. Maybe you don't think you have anything to offer. Maybe you've done things that just hang so big over your head that you can't get over. Well, the two biggest and most important figures in the book of Acts are Peter and Paul. And both of them had pasts that were incredibly regrettable. 
And the, the grace of Jesus Christ did two things. It took away the shame of their past and it gave them work to do. This past Sunday's lesson, Jesus said, I will show him what great things he's going to need to suffer for my sake. Speaking to Paul. Maybe you are weak and fearful. And this whole business of the spiritual gifts and building the kingdom, you just don't see how you fit into all that. And you just don't have what it takes to... Well, no, you don't have what it takes. Neither do I or anybody else. Without me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. So get over yourself already. It's not about you. It's about his grace. Courage is impossible without fear. There's nothing wrong with being afraid. How can a person be brave if they're not in a dangerous situation? Courage is about moving in spite of fear. Think about Queen Esther. She understood her place in history. She understood where she was and why she was there. And she said, here we go. If I perish, I perish. That's courage. In Isaiah 54, there are those words, fear not. We need to hear that again and again. I need to hear that again and again because there are times I am incredibly afraid. We all deal with that. Every time an angel or the Lord appears to someone in Scripture, what are the first two words? Fear not. Don't be afraid. I did not present this this evening because I, I think that we're bad at this point. I want you to understand that clearly. This, this is something that, that has been on my heart. This is something that has been impressed upon me and I felt like I, I needed to share it here this evening. The joy of our salvation is something that should come out of us. And we're going to continue this theme just a little bit uh, tomorrow evening as I talk about the power of the ordinary. And there are, there are times and places, I think, especially where our experiencing the joy of our salvation should be um, especially evident uh, to people around us. Thank you for your attention this evening.